Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Okay, this is going to be an obscure reference, but you simply must go watch this movie if you haven't seen it. The 1997 movie Bean features Rowan Atkinson as the mostly quiet, except for grunts, socially awkward, accident-prone Mr. Bean. At one point, he's closely examining the painting of Whistler's mother. The dust on the frame gets the better of him, and he sneezes on the painting. He wants to clean it off, so he uses his handkerchief not knowing that his pen had leaked on it, which only makes things worse. And as he tries and tries to fix it and make it better, the worse the disaster becomes hilarious. Unfortunately, Whistler's mother seems to be symbolic of how we've always known life to be, and the shift in the current culture appears to be Mr. Bean, except without the redeeming qualities and sincere desire to make things right. They just keep fiddling and playing and changing and messing, and as a result, keep making things worse and worse. On today's episode, we're going to shoot our genitals into space, then we're going to be all gay, but not the happy kind, about our libraries, and we'll wrap up with most likely the self-caused microscopic annihilation of all life on Earth. So put on some clean undies, leave your hateful judgmentalness at the door, and grab the supersized container of disinfectant wipes. (laughs) You're gonna need them. And after these stories, you'll probably just wipe them all over yourself to try to get clean. Oh, this doesn't seem like the best idea, but hey, the show must go on, so uh, here we go. I think by this time in our history, everyone is exhaustingly, nauseatingly familiar with the glass ceiling. If you're not, please comment and tell me how you've been able to avoid this so I can copy you exactly. For the rest of us, we know what this allegedly means for business, politics, and entertainment. But did you know that this extends to space as well? Now, you may say, sure, Dan, we're not stupid. Of course women are disgustingly, brutally, violently underrepresented in astronaut and space-related careers. To which I'd say, although I can't speak for the rest of the world, the roles in NASA aren't exactly split 50-50, although... I'm not a biologist, so how can I truly say? But looking at the current data, it appears that alleged women, whatever that means, makes up just over 35% of the current NASA workforce. And the number of women astronauts in NASA is sitting at about 45% as of 2017. But no, I'm not talking about people. I'm talking about spacecraft. You know, rockets. You're probably wondering what I'm talking about, and that just proves how oppressed you are by the patriarchal system and narrative. So think about it. What do rockets generally look like? Since the inception of rockets, the space shuttle doesn't count. That's right. They look like, uh, well, to be medically correct, a man unit. But how many spacecraft have you seen blasting off from a launch pad that you can honestly look at and say... That sure does look like women's naughty bits. Again, highly technical medical terminology here. Well, thank Gaia, or whatever female goddess, as confirmed, I'm assuming, by a godiologist, you currently light your incense to, 
all that's about to change. Maybe. From Dazine.com, the self-described, quote, world's most popular and influential architecture, interiors, and design magazine, <laughs> but look at me go on preaching to the choir, headline, Volva Spaceship Aims to Counter Prevalence of Phallic Spacecraft. Now, at first I was thinking, what would shooting a boxy Swedish car into space prove? Then I realized it was Volva, so, so then my view changed slightly. Now that I understand, I think we can all agree and say it with me, it's about time vulvas are magnificently, gloriously lofted high into space. I, I, Jenks, buy me a Coke. I know you were all saying that. So a German feminist, and those two words put together in that manner, should send a chill down your spine, art group named Verbrockt Feminismus, which translates to who needs feminism, has come up with an artistic rendering of a vulva-shaped <laughs> and sculpted concept design for a possible spaceship. Now, they're currently trying to get the European Space Agency through a change.org petition to help them get their vulva off the ground in order to better represent humanity, or, or should I say, humanity, in space and restore, quote, gender equality to the cosmos. They further went on to say, quote, the project adds another dimension to the representation of humanity in space and is communicating to the world that anyone has a place in the universe regardless of their genitalia. Ha. Ah, I guess the qualifier to that statement would be as long as all the alien life forms that I'm sure they believe are out there have the standard uh, penis-vagina configuration, if you will. If these alien beings have something else, and I'm really trying not to put a whole lot of thought into that, they still may be offended by their underrepresentation. Now, coming back down to Earth from the cosmos that we're finally setting right, they further say, quote, new shapes in space will revolutionize our thinking, our actions, and everything we have thought to be true. Now, I'm an engineer, which is the complete opposite end of the spectrum of a liberal arts major, but uh, would this be considered dramatic license? I mean, come on, everything we have thought to be true? How? To add to the drama, founder of Verbracht Feminismus, Frau Blucke. Sorry, I had to. And if you know what that's from, that was hilarious. Anyway, the founder, Jasmine Mittig, said, quote, We are not only inspiring space travel, but we're also rewriting the gender narrative. Miss Mittig, an artist and activist, confidently believes that not only would this be a symbolically inclusive step forward, but it, it would also be, quote, surprisingly aerodynamic. Now, this is because of its V shape, which creates very little drag, so up, up, and away. Well, listen, aerodynamics are important, and from what I know from all of my zero hours in aerospace engineering, an aerodynamic shape is literally all you need to launch something into space. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, I think mocking is a good start. <laughs> Can we just stop with the absolutely asinine competition that feminists seem to be trying to make happen? Not everything is done for male or female purposes. I mean, look, I wasn't there, and there are no records but I feel confident that Werner von Braun and Robert Goddard weren't struggling over what shape to shoot into the sky 
when Bob was in the shower one day, made a revolutionary discovery, hopped out and shot Werner a text. Vern, I think I'm onto something. I'll show you when I get to the office. I'm also just as confident saying that at no time did the brain trust of the early days of NASA have a closed-door, smoke-filled, scotch-fueled meeting where they decided shooting a penis into space would show our male dominance of the cosmos. Deal with that, aliens. The artist rendering of this vulva craft is <laughs> just ridiculous. I mean, they really strove to be anatomically correct. I'll give them that. But having the ability to draw a 2D image with a pointy shape at the top doesn't exactly make you a rocket scientist. Now, it may be that the tall cylindrical shape of most rockets are, are that way because not only are they aerodynamic, but they can store fuel in a more efficient way. They're more controllable. They're, they're able to have multiple stages which break away without changing the fundamental characteristics of the overall craft, and they're relatively easy to design and build. Now, maybe Verbrock Feminismus could put their vulva on the tip of a standard phallus rocket as the crew capsule. <laughs> but I'm sure that, you know, there would be a lot of people decrying that choice in both camps, as the optics of something like that would be, well, I mean, admittedly hilarious, but generally suboptimal. So where does this kind of psychosis come from? Well, ultimately what we have is a self-centered, jealous, covetous, angry group of people that believe the world is against them, trying to oppress them, and come hell or high water, they're going to get what should be theirs. Bottom line, this is a result of sin. This kind of behavior was predicted over 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God and God was laying out the consequences for their sinful actions, God said to Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. At that moment, a struggle, a battle for control, for dominance was set in motion. Man was given the role of headship, and woman resented that. And this has been seen all throughout history, especially with the feminist movement of our current era. Now, I'll let you enter the octagon cage match of should women be astronauts or even be working at all. I'm not willing to get in there with you. Not at this point. Not in this kind of forum. But I think we can agree, regardless of what side you fall on, in the world of Christianity, this has become a very hotly debated topic. At this point, it's very possible that there could be a few listeners that believe I'm some sort of a male chauvinist, but, but I assure you I'm not. I do, however, believe that men and women are not equal, except for those that are saved in the eyes of God. As Paul said in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Beyond that, we aren't equal. We're complementary, which I'd argue is much better. Multiple places in the Bible, Ephesians 5 and 6, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, 1 Corinthians 14, Paul lays out some roles for men, women, children, pastors, elders, teachers, single, married, widowed, orphaned, free, and slave. You can go read these for yourself, but from Genesis all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, we can find roles for both genders, roles given by God, not by man. This current feminist-driven competition, this striving to break the glass ceiling, the quest to be paid equally, not fairly, there is a difference, the delusional desire to change the way words are spelled, to create new words that aren't words, even to change the gender you were created as, or otherwise pervert sex as created and ordained by God, the desire to wait longer to get married and longer to have children, 
and the satanic sacrifice of our children through abortion, all of this is driven by the quest to subvert the complementary roles of men and women as God designed. And as we can see with this silly article, it even manifests itself with the need to launch their genitalia into space because their worldview causes them to see male genitalia as the reason for the shape of rockets, and by their definition, that's oppressive. Now, I had fun with this article, probably a little too much, but the reality is these women are serious. They truly believe that men shape the rocket to assert dominance both over women on Earth and all aliens that may come here. They are blinded by their sin. But men don't go anywhere. <laughs> We're not perfect either. And as the God-ordained head of the home and the spiritual head of the church and family, we bear responsibility, not just also, but ultimately. When did sin enter the world? Not when Eve ate the fruit, when Adam did. She was responsible for her own sin, yeah. But he was ultimately responsible for what happened in the first place. So with that, how many of us can say that we're following Paul's instructions to us correctly? Uh, closely? Uh, at all? If men aren't reliable, if we aren't responsible, if we aren't who God calls us to be, women will never be who God designed them to be. And with good reason. Nature abhors a vacuum, and a vacuum of leadership exists from men not doing their job, so women fill the gap. Take a look at probably the majority of churches these days. Tell me I'm wrong. Men, it's time to step up and be men. Biblical men. And trust me, I may be pointing at you, but I've got three fingers pointing back at me. And, and the thumb is kind of pointing at you too, so like two verses three. The ultimate problem will not be remedied until Jesus puts all things back to the way they started and the way that they were supposed to be. But what would it do if each one of us just individually pursued the role that God designed for us? Men being men, women being women, with the understanding that in our earthly roles we are not equal, but we are complementary. Together we make a complete unit, a complete creation. For those of us that are saved, we can confidently take up our roles, making mistakes, repenting for sins, striving to be the people that God has called and ordained us to be, knowing that it's more important to be children of God, living as God ordained, than to compete to be the king or queen of the hill. And we can have peace taking up our earthly roles, knowing that not only does that please God and bring him glory, but in his eyes he sees every one of his children as equally precious. How many of you are old enough to remember learning how to flip through an endless drawer of little cards with strange combinations of letters and numbers, searching for the book you want? Then, when you found the card with the book on it, the real game began. Find the aisle, then the shelf, then the spot, and pray that the book you think should be there is actually there. Now, if you're like me, you have a faint memory of a specific smell your library had, and although you can't quite put your finger on it right now, if you caught a whiff of it, it would transport you right back there. Now, if you're the generation younger than me, you may have no idea what I'm talking about, and for that I'm truly sorry. If you're the generation older than me, you had what, stone tablets, scrolls? I'm not really sure. Ah, okay, I jest, I'm sorry. Well, don't fret, all is not lost. The library, or more specifically, the Public Library Association, is all about ensuring libraries across America are modernizing and updating and ready to serve everyone in every way. Found on theblaze.com, and although this will really just be a springboard rather than our landing pad, the headline, uh, deep breath for this one, 
Public Library Association's National Conference teaches librarians about queering the library, how Dewey Decimal System is biased against historically marginalized groups. <sighs> okay, I'll be honest. I would literally back a presidential executive order right now on a maximum number of words allowed in a headline. Moving on. So the Public Library Association, or PLA, held a conference March 23rd through 25th of this year, and per the conference website, quote, the number one reason public library professionals attend PLA conference is for the high-quality educational programming that is both practical and relevant to their work. Now more than ever, libraries are eager to learn from one another and discover new ways to meet their community's evolving needs. The PLA conference offers over 100 educational sessions curated by public libraries for public libraries that reflect the innovation, creativity, adaptability, and diversity we've seen emerge from the public library field since the pandemic. So I went to their conference proceedings, and as you search through the list of classes, there's a lot of solid offerings, how to get adults back engaged into the library system, how to better serve communities like the blind community and multilingual communities, those with special needs, how to incorporate the world of digital and digital books, how to effectively ensure security in the library, etc., etc. But make no mistake, these were the topics that were more few and far between. So in the three days, they said over 100 sessions. I counted 94, but we don't need to split hairs over this. They have 15 session periods. Now, I've gone to a fair number of conferences, and you generally want to have multiple tracks a participant can take during the breakout sessions, but an average of six per session, and if my numbers are correct, out of these 15, there were two or three that only had one option, so really, you're at about an average of seven possible breakout sessions per time period, and that's just untenable. Okay, it's okay though, because they had similar offerings at different times throughout the days, such as two sessions addressing homosexuality, the students take pride supporting GSAs, or the Gay Student Alliances, in middle and high schools, and also queering the library, strategically creating space for the LGBTQ plus community. They had two sessions on reincorporating the incarcerated community. They had Be Heard, Amplifying and Validating Incarcerated Teen Voices, and they had Ready Access, Reentry Services for Decarcerated Populations. There were seven sessions dealing with the First Amendment. They had Find the First Amendment, a library puzzle. <laughs> that was an interactive one. They had Prepare Your Library for Today's Censorship Battles. Hmm. They had a three-part series on intellectual freedom, and then they had one titled Horrible Evil Library Books, Intellectual Freedom Standards in Customer Service, among others. Then there were 11 sessions dealing with social justice. Two were about removing late fees and fines. Two were on specifically instituting social justice in the library. And then there were a number of equity-type sessions for free broadband and housing insecurity, free computers, free food, free healthcare, uh, digital equity, and on and on. These are all about how the library system can either be the hub that provides the info 
or the hub that literally provides the goods like computers and food to the people. And then we had 17 sessions dealing with equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI, or DEI, or IDE. It depends on which one you find and who wants to flip the letters around. They had a session on revamping your library's board of directors, so that sounds Orwellian. They had a session on revamping your card catalog because it's based on old patriarchal oppressive systems, and then literally 15 sessions on either diversity in the workforce or diversity in the library or both. So out of the 94 sessions I counted, I just rattled off 39 sessions, just over 40% of the offerings, had to deal with essentially diversity or social justice or homosexuality in one form or another. Oh, and there was also another one in there on climate change and sustainable libraries. <laughs> and I wouldn't be surprised if I missed some. The link to the conference schedule is in the notes, and you can click each title to get a summary of the class offering, and most of them have the presentation that was given. So, I'd encourage you to go explore this on your own if you'd like and if you enjoy being frustrated. So summing up briefly, the two that were mentioned in the unbelievably long headline from The Blaze. First, queering our libraries. <laughs> As if the tranny reading hours aren't doing that enough. This was presented by two librarians from the Prince George's County Library System in Maryland. Their strategic areas of focus for 2021 through 24 are as follows, inclusion, literacy and learning, personal achievement, creativity, healthy living, equity, diversity, you'll never guess, inclusion, uh, again, anti-racism and social justice. I thought this was a library. I might be in the wrong area here. Now, before they formed their team, they found that there was no system-wide pride initiative. Monsters is who were running this library. And they found there was hesitation, I guess, by the librarians and those associated to highlighting LGBTQ plus issues. There was hesitation by the libraries to highlight an agenda, huh? They also found that the voluntary training that was offered really wasn't reaching the staff who needed it most. Oh man, I have a feeling I'd be in that bucket. So they wanted to pull off a rainbow family festival, kind of a kickoff to their project in 2020, which, oh, tear so sadly got canceled, but don't worry, they went digital. But some of the key partners, I thought, might be interesting to mention, the court-appointed special advocates of Prince George's County, Planned Parenthood, Free State Justice, and the County Health Department, HIV AIDS program. I'm curious that it's that very specific program. I don't know why. I can't make the connection. Additionally, they've now mandated training for all staff, so I I bet that's wonderful. And they've set up a Pride 365 program to just keep the party rolling the whole year long. They also set up the Butterfly Project, which I'm sure butterflies are honored to be a part of, which is a, quote, targeted workforce development and community connections program for black and brown trans women. And I want to point out that black is capitalized, but brown is not. So they've They've got that done correctly. And then they wrap up their talk with, 
how to gay up your library system. And so that's great. Now look, I've just got to ask, do you have shelves of books available? What I'd like is a book. I really don't want to walk out with a flag sticker, a new membership to something, and a look of befuddlement on my face as to what just happened to me in there without a book. At least give me a book. As for the card catalog, little did you know that the Dewey Decimal System was non-inclusive and anti-diverse. <laughs> Turns out, from their presentation, the way we catalog books and have for well over a century isn't accurate. I mean, who knew? It only apparently tells the history of those that are in power and shuns the oppressed. So this needs to be corrected. Now, essentially, what this person was advocating was to remove books from their normal history classification, shove them into the 900s, as if I remember what that is, and then split them up with a fine-tooth comb. Split them by years, split them by presidents, split them by slavery and civil rights, etc., etc. Just keep splitting them into their own little segregated sections. Sounds kind of like what we're doing in society right now, doesn't it? And while you're in there moving books around, get rid of the offensive ones. There's no need to have those books on the shelf. So this one isn't as egregious. If you want to reorganize, go ahead. But the, the premise is a bit off. I don't think a case can be made that the system was set up as oppressive or biased. But as always, we have to ensure we keep everything split into finer and finer groups because that's what you do in a melting pot. Bottom line. A library is not a change agent for the world. A library is not the cultural center of the country or of the community. A library is not an activist organization. A library is a building that has books, oftentimes magazines, periodicals, reference materials, and, and most of them now are digital to some degree. They offer computers and Wi-Fi and maybe some meeting and study spaces. But they're not there to improve the lives or push an agenda, based on their views. They're literally there as a repository of information and a system of disseminating said information. This is literally Romans 1, and I know, I know. I've come back to this in multiple episodes, but, but the perversity that's not only running rampant in our country and world, but the way that it's being pushed in every medium and every organization on every age group is... To me, literally unbelievable. It fits Romans 1 almost perfectly. I think back to my childhood. I went to the library all the time. I loved to read. And I'd go downstairs into the basement of our small library to the kids' area. I'd pick me up about a dozen books, check them out, and bike back home about three blocks away. I never had to worry about having some dude dressed up as an ugly woman accosting me. I didn't have to worry about weeding through a section on social justice. I wasn't told that I needed to be more inclusive. Most of the time I was bringing back books, and I was getting more books. And that's it. And that's all it should be. But Satan and his demonic horde don't want to miss an opportunity to attack our children. And for as much longer as libraries are an actual thing, he'll apparently use even those. So parents, make sure you know what your kids are walking into. Spaces that used to be safe are either unsafe or are likely less safe than they used to be. We need to be on our guard and on our knees at all times. Those that feel their job is to push an agenda or promote specific messaging are everywhere. Protect your kids, protect yourself, and pray for the protection that only God can truly provide. I'm sure you've heard a phrase something along the lines of tampering in God's domain. 
right? What does that mean? What exactly is God's domain? Well, you could argue that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then the light, then the sky and the atmosphere, the dry ground and the seas, and all the vegetation, then the stars and our sun and moon, water creatures, flying creatures, land-dwelling creatures, and somewhere in there, the duck-billed platypus, because what is that? And then God created man out of the dust, then woman out of the rib of man. So we could easily make the argument that uh, everything is God's domain, and we'd be right. But that's not generally what's meant by the phrase. Just keeping our hands to ourselves and don't touch that. That's not quite what it means. God told us to fill up the earth, to have dominion over the earth, and to use the earth. So clearly we're given permission to do stuff in his domain. Narrowing this down a bit, we generally look at God's domain as science-based, typically biological, so life science-based. But even there... Clearly, we're given natural plants and remedies for ailments where we developed ways to cleanse the body, to treat disease, illness, and injury, and heal the sick. We've developed antibacterials, antibiotics, and vaccines. We're able to transfer blood, transfer organs, reattach limbs to various degrees. We can help the deaf to hear, the paralyzed to communicate, and the list goes on and on of what I think are rightly called medical miracles. But where do we draw the line? for tampering in God's domain. What is too far? Well, here's my answer. I have no idea. From what I can tell, there isn't necessarily a definitive line. This is one point where it really would have been nice to have a biblical guideline to follow, but unfortunately, we don't. Now, knowing God is sovereign, we know that there isn't one thing that's happening that's escaped his control, but that doesn't absolve us of responsibility, which means if we dabble where we shouldn't, we may have consequences to face. God has allowed us to be smart enough to do a a lot of things, but we should also be wise enough to know where to stop. I know I've quoted the 1993 documentary Jurassic Park a few times, but there's a lot of good wisdom in there. Such as when Ian Malcolm says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Would bringing back full-blown dinosaurs be crossing the line? I don't know. Bringing back the dodo bird is being talked about. Is that crossing the line? We know that cloning humans is crossing the line. For now, is cloning animals? Because we're doing that. Is genetically manipulating animals crossing the line? What about humans to create designer babies? So many questions. I'm going to leave this here for right now, and then let's move into the article. We'll we'll pick this up in a minute. From National Geographic, although I took it from the UK site, as the US site wanted me to put in my email address, and uh, no. Headline, The Controversial Quest to Make a Contagious Vaccine. And the image used is an infrared picture of a cloud of bats because, of course, it is. This is a long article. I'm only going to cover just a tiny bit, so I'd encourage you to go read it for yourself. The first sentence lays out the premise, quote, Imagine a cure that's as contagious as the disease it fights, a vaccine that could replicate in a host's body and spread to others nearby quickly and easily protecting a whole population from microbial attacks. Now, this is apparently something that was researched a while ago, but was stopped. But with the COVID pandemic, the research has been revived. 
A researcher that's currently working on a study is quoted toward the end of the article as saying, quote, we can't even get people to take a vaccine in a global pandemic. The idea that you would be able to surreptitiously vaccinate the population with a virus without causing riots is just, you know, it's stuff of fantasy. It will never be used in humans. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll come back to that also here in just a moment. So a study was done in 1999 on wild rabbits on the island of Isla del Air. On this island, the rabbits were being wiped out from both rabbit hemorrhagic disease and mysomatosis. These are apparently known rabbit diseases, and although domestic rabbits can be vaccinated, wild rabbits, especially uh, since they reproduce like, uh, like rabbits, vaccinating them is nearly impossible. So the researchers used a mild form of the mysoma virus, put in just a touch of the hemorrhagic disease, and then infected some of the wild rabbits. So essentially, using the mysoma virus to infect them with a mild strain, but since it's highly contagious, it would spread through the population. And while it's in there, the immune system would also recognize the hemorrhagic disease and code a response to that as well. Voila, a viral vaccine. They did a controlled study of microchipped wild rabbits, infecting some, leaving the others as the control group, then let them all go and let rabbits be rabbits. After about a month, they recaptured the silly rabbits and found that 56% of the control group now had the antibodies for both viruses. Apparently, they didn't follow all the rules of science per the EMA, or European Medicines Agency, and they were given two years to clean up their work but they weren't given any additional funding, so the whole thing was dropped. Well, with renewed interest both prior to COVID-19 and definitely after, the thought process is basically the same. To find a virus as a carrier, splice in a protein from the virus you want to vaccinate against, then release it into the population and let it replicate throughout. Now, the thought for now is that this would be done solely on animal populations. These virologists and various other science-talking guys are trying to identify viruses in animals that could jump to humans, allegedly naturally and not via gain-of-function research, allegedly, and then vaccinate it out of the animal population, thereby removing any potential threat. The reasoning behind doing this kind of research is, as always, to save human lives. They cite the CDC, yeah, the one that we all love so much, which states that, quote, scientists estimate that more than six out of every ten known infectious diseases in people can be spread from animals, and three out of every four new or emerging infectious diseases in people come from animals. Okay, well, I guess I'll accept their premise, so what does the CDC say to do about this, since it's so prevalent and apparently really dangerous? Well, it basically comes down to, uh, wash your hands. Oh, and try to avoid bites from mosquitoes, ticks, and fleas. And bites and scratches from animals. You know, so, basically live like a human. Got it. Okay. It's so dangerous that in order to protect ourselves, we need to do common sense things that we already do. So, you know, perfect. The Nat Geo article goes on to state that we can't predict anything about when we'll get hit with a zoonotic disease. But when we do, quote, these diseases are often deadly and costly to control. And they have links to other studies. And uh, by now you know me, I have an innate desire to follow links. So I did. Regarding the cost and death toll, 
From a study in 2014, the stated cost from 1997 to 2009 due to six zoonotic diseases in specific countries, so you can kind of see how they're tailoring the data here, was $80 billion. But when they estimate the worst case scenario, a potential loss from a pandemic influenza outbreak could be $3 trillion. Of course, if you look up the cost of COVID, you get estimates right now of just under $10 trillion to nearly $30 trillion. Although, one would have to first look very closely at the actual rather than the guesstimated costs. And it would be interesting to break it into the actual cost of the virus versus the massive costs due to the overreaction by countries around the globe because of the virus. Now, when we look at the cost from this study, they cited $80 billion over 12 years. That's a measly, and I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but that's a measly $6.66 billion per year. I mean, look, we just gave Ukraine $13.6 billion to fight the Russians, and, and we don't really even have any money in this country. Like, like none. Like, we, we are really in debt. So it doesn't really seem like fighting these zoonotic viruses are really that costly, relatively speaking. But maybe it's the death toll. That might be the real driver here. I'll report this study cites from the International Livestock Research Institute, and you don't even have to tell me how much you love them, it says that an estimated 2.5 billion or more cases of human illnesses and 2.7 million deaths annually can be attributed to zoonosis. Well, okay, that seems excessive, right? I mean, but that's due to only the top 56 zoonotic infections. And remember, this is estimated. All right, well, per their estimates, the first thing we see is that if their numbers are correct, out of all the illnesses, 99.9% recover. And if we're talking about 56 diseases, that means we have globally, annually, an average of 48,214 people that die from each of these diseases or viruses. Again, looking at a global population of over 7.9 billion people, that means 0.0006% of the population dies from each of these viruses, or a grand total of 0.03% from the 56. Now, according to the WHO, you know, the World Health Organization, that uh, we love just as much as the CDC, the deaths from all 56 diseases taken together falls behind cancer, heart disease, stroke, and COPD. But keep in mind, this would necessitate 56 vaccines to address all of this. So it's, it's not really just one disease. The bottom line, from a personal standpoint, I'm sorry people die. From a statistical standpoint, this, and remember, this is an estimate, this really isn't that big of a deal. But Nagio goes farther. And if you're not convinced yet, this, <laughs> this will get you. Quote, many researchers predict that climate change, biodiversity loss, and population growth will accelerate their spread. Right? So now how scared of jumping animal viruses are you? Huh? So set to start soon, 
is a trial on the Lassa fever virus, which affects rodents. This viral vaccine they're developing will have a new mechanism that will allegedly allow the researchers an ability to limit the number of times the vaccine can multiply, thus limiting how many generations of rats it can protect. But they believe that this vaccine will reduce the transmission of the disease by 95%, thus more healthy rats. So... So that's great. Now, to the credit of Nat Geo, they do lay out some questions that, that really must be asked. What happens if this viral vaccine mutates? What will it mutate to? And could it actually be more dangerous than what it's trying to protect against? And if nature does what nature does, what happens if we disrupt nature like this? For instance, if we protect the rat population, the rats that infest food stocks and spread disease in water supplies... What does that do to human populations? What could increased rats do to other habitats? <laughs> if you recall back in May of 2021, Chicago released a thousand feral cats into the city to combat the rat problem they were having. And then I think the biggest question I'd have, if zoonotic viruses can mutate and jump to humans, what's stopping one of these vaccine-carrying zoonotic virus things from jumping to humans? And then what? So at this point, it appears to be fairly universally agreed that using a contagious vaccine on humans is over the line. For now. But that's not because we're tampering in God's domain. It's because, quote, most researchers agree that self-spreading vaccines could never be applied to human populations because universal informed consent would never be achieved. Ah, and as our researcher said, people wouldn't stand for it. But after the COVID pandemic and the messaging and the push and the lockdowns and the threats, how hard do we really think it would be to force a viral vaccine on a population? And if some die, well, the same thought process is with the COVID injection. It's for the greater good. So from a Christian standpoint, what do we do? Well, the bottom line is, I don't think there's a clear answer to something like this. I mean, I really had to put some thought into this one because it's not as straightforward as it may first appear. And my conclusion, I'm just going to warn you, may not be overly satisfying. I admit this. But I still think this was well worth covering and definitely worth the thought exercise. Personally, <laughs> it's a no for me, dog. I just don't like this idea, as, as it has just bad idea written all over it. But as a Christian, it comes back to the question of what's the line? I think that although we neglect to do this all the time, we should be striving to bring glory to God in all we do. Using the knowledge and abilities God has granted us to create vaccines that literally benefit image bearers of God, I think brings glory to God. We know that we're given dominion over the earth and all that's in it, so technically we have the right to virally vaccinate animals. However, if we do this without having a clear idea as to what all of the potential consequences are, does this bring God glory? Just going off half-cocked like this? I don't think so. I think it shows a recklessness with his creation. And I think we need to look at the reasons behind the desire. Is this motivated out of fear of death? That's not glorifying. Is this being done out of a desire to play God? That's definitely not glorifying. Is this being done because we believe it's our job to protect the planet to a point of, of worshiping Mother Earth, as in the thought by most environmentalists that humans are the actual virus and plants, animals, bugs, and even the real viruses should be ruling the planet? Because that's certainly not glorifying to God. To wrap this up, 
I don't have a great answer. I think when it comes to genetic modification, we need to tread very carefully. And when doing it on a large scale with no idea what might happen, I think we need to stop altogether. The opposing view is given as the wrap-up to the article, a quote by one of the researchers. Quote, the way that I like to think about it is that it may never be used, but it's better to have something in the cupboard that can be used and is mature if we need it, and to say, let's just not do this research because it's too dangerous. To me, that makes no sense at all. Well, I don't think I could agree with that. As we might have absolutely definitely seen very recently, when a lab experiment gets into the population, uh, we don't know what will happen. And an experiment with unclear, potentially devastating consequences, done for humanistic reasons, I think the Christian has every reason to seriously question the wisdom in pursuing that research. And that's unfortunately where I have to leave this. <laughs> this is one where I'm going to leave this to you to ponder. What happens if this becomes a reality? What happens if this is seriously considered for humans to purportedly protect humans? In our current world, these are the types of questions and the types of scenarios that you and I need to be prepared to address. So I'd be very interested in hearing your feelings on this. Email or comment on the episode. Where do you stand on something like this? And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. God bless.